BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. January 6, 2021. It's a date now etched into the consciousness of the American people for what the left and its allies in the media have labeled the January 6 insurrection. It's led to arrests, prosecutions, congressional hearings, even the impeachment of a sitting U.S. president. All the while, it appears that many of us have all but forgotten the events of the spring and summer of 2020, the consequences of which were arguably far more significant and are still being felt in big cities across the country. In this special edition of Hold the Line, we'll take a look at the other insurrection, the BLM riots. This morning, with great solemnity and sadness, uh, I'm announcing that the House will be establishing a select committee on the January 6th insurrection. There needs to be a thorough and honest accounting of what took place on January 6th, the greatest attempted insurrection since the Civil War. The insurrection was an existential crisis, a test of whether our democracy could survive. This is not like a pickup game, this situation, where they just suddenly all come together and can do it. This was like the Super Bowl of domestic terrorism. Welcome to this special edition of Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. We want to talk to you about the other insurrection, an actual insurrection if you want to look at the long-term impact, the damage involved, the lives lost, the goals of the movement. The BLM riots killed 25, injured over 2,000 police officers. There were over 14,000 arrests, and property damage was estimated to be between $1 and $2 billion dollars. By comparison, what happened on January 6th was a few hours. Congress was in session later that day, finished its business, and the only person killed was an unarmed female protester named Ashley Babbitt, and we still can't know the name of the officer who shot her, nor the justification for the use of force that ended her life. But you see, we already know so much about January 6th because the media keeps telling us about it, and they call it an insurrection even though it was a riot. Democrats specialize in riots, though, don't they? In fact, if you were to look at a series of riots over a long period of time meant to change the political climate in a country, meant to even in some points seize territory, that's right, and to undermine law enforcement systematically, to undermine government control rooted in the rule of law, doesn't that feel a whole lot more like an actual insurrection, a real challenge to laws and government authority? When you line it up that way, you realize the 
damage done over the course of the summer of 2020 and into the 2020 election is incalculable. And yet CNN, of course, was running with the, it was mostly peaceful during, say, the August 2020 Kenosha riot. What you're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations that have been burning in Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the course of the night. A second night since Jacob Blake was seen shot in the back seven times by a police officer. And what you are seeing now, these images came and come in stark contrast to what we saw over the course of the daytime hours in Kenosha and into the early evening, which were largely peaceful demonstrations in the face of law enforcement. January 6th, by this definition, was a largely or mostly peaceful protest. There was a riot that occurred that day, and Democrats remind us of it at every opportunity as a weapon against their political opponents. But what about all the riots that the Democrats engaged in, that Biden voters engaged in, not once, not for days, for weeks, for months, leading up to a presidential election in which it was clear that the implied threat of violence was hanging in the background, which is why in major cities there were people boarding up their businesses, their stores, their homes for fear of what would happen should Biden not actually win. Doesn't that feel a bit like a different kind of insurrection underway? And let's not forget that as this was all happening, the Democrats, instead of calling for law and order, instead of calling for calm in the country on the basis of constitutional protection and individual rights being respected, they were calling for a defunding of the police, essentially unleash the anarchy in our streets, unleash the other insurrection even more. Yes, I support the defund movement because this is about the, the um, investment in our communities, which have historically been divested. Not only do we need to defund, but we need to dismantle and start anew. Why use the word defund? Why use the word defund? And it's like, this is the word that's coming from the streets. Look, the reality is we can't rely upon the police to provide public safety. Yeah. All right, we've got a great lineup of guests for you on this special edition of Hold the Line on the other insurrection. Coming up, a reporter who's on the front lines of the systematic riots of the left, Andy No. He's going to join us when we come back. The people who participated in last year's riots weren't limited to supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. The chaos and disorder also became a playground for the far-left anarchist group Antifa. In dozens of cities around the country, the group organized and carried out acts of assault, arson, vandalism, and in at least one potential case, murder. Journalist Andy Noe's dogged coverage of Antifa has placed him in the crosshairs of the violent group on more than one occasion. He's the author of Unmasked Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy, he joins us now. Andy, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So during the other insurrection in the summer of 2020, you were right there on the ground on many occasions. What, just give, give everyone a, a refresher course, if you will, Andy, in what you saw from Antifa. Yeah, I think people do need a refresher because you don't see the repeating of the images from last year. Uh, 
on the mainstream uh, broadcast television or in the papers. So last year, in response to George Floyd's death, we had riots across America in dozens and dozens of cities uh, that resulted in neighborhoods being burnt down. My home city of Portland, Oregon, where Antifa is particularly uh, active, uh, they actually, um, uh, for a month in July, night after night, returned to try to break inside a federal courthouse and to burn it down. Um, then after that, they rioted for months every night. Um, th there was a murder in the streets of downtown Portland by a self-identified Antifa member. The violence was repeated in similar ways in Seattle, where they created a so-called autonomous zone. And that was when they created the, the CHAZ, that's where they actually seized territory in the middle of Seattle and created a hard border, had checkpoints and had people with weapons manning uh, these checkpoints as if it was like in Lebanon or something. Uh, up until uh, recently in Minneapolis, um, an autonomous zone was established outside of the uh, convenience store where George Floyd died. And they too created uh, barricade checkpoints. And uh, on the anniversary of George Floyd's death this year, there was uh, shootings that occurred during live media hits when the press was inside. So I can go on and on with these examples, but what it, um, all these examples demonstrate is that the riots last year, you can look at the number of people who died as a direct result of the riots or during the rioting, uh, which were dozens, 26 by my account, there was a politically motivated murder. So I think what's frustrating about the continued politicization of the riot on the 6th of January is that the events of one day um, have been have the coverage of that has come at the expense of everything that happened last year and in the case of Portland is still ongoing. Andy, there's a lot of, of uh, time that's spent right now in the media, again, going to the January 6th riot about how there were assaults on police officers. Can you just give us a sense of going back to you know, June through the fall of 2020 leading up to the election? Were there, did, did Antifa assault police officers? Was that something that you were aware of, that you witnessed? And, and just give us some of those details. It's very cynical and disturbing to me to, for the Democrats to, um, in response to the 6th of January, to then um, put on a show of where they're so thankful for law enforcement, for protecting them, when they spent months on end last year at the highest levels of the Democrat Party demonizing law enforcement. And some of them even called uh, some members of, of the Democrat Party in Congress even called for defunding and or abolishing police. And uh, when in Portland and in Seattle and St. Louis and cities across America where police officers were getting violently assaulted night after night or week after week, uh, by far-left militant rioters uh, affiliated with BLM or Antifa, the Democrats were entirely quiet. In fact, many of them at the local level, those, for example, on city council or mayors, even expressed support for the rioters and condemned law enforcement. So this um, lack of principles that we're seeing on, on display um, in regards to the response of the 6th of January demonstrates to me that um, those who are calling for endless investigations and um, testimony hearings, et cetera, 
they're not interested in finding out what actually happened that day. How do we prevent it? Uh, what do we need to know about what happened in 6th of January? They're interested in using it for political theater, um, to use it uh, to score either um, to, to help fundraise or to help in campaigning for their cause. And that's a very sick and cynical way to use um, that event because uh, people died, uh, somebody died there, Ashley Babbitt died. Uh, and uh, other people who who were there that day ended up dying for different reasons as well as we've learned uh, some, uh, as we, we, we've discovered completely unrelated to the actual riot. Andy, there's been a lot of talk on the left about the January 6th riots being organized on social media and they call for companies like Facebook and Parler to be held to account for allowing uh, that organization to occur. Does Antifa openly organize demonstrations and, yes, riots and direct action, as they call it, on social media platforms? Yes, and they do it with impunity. And in fact, um, from what I've learned in my own investigations on the ground, they themselves have said that they would not be able to do what they call direct actions or mutual aid uh, without Twitter. And it's been very frustrating to me as somebody who's brought attention to these flyers that call for comrades to come with weapons and what particular weapons to bring and how to elude detection from law enforcement or how to get rid of their clothing or any evidence that might tie them to violent criminal acts. All that is done, it's not even done discreetly on Twitter or Instagram, it's done openly and it's retweeted and shared by these larger accounts that are part of these Antifa networks. And that's how you get people, particularly young people, to show up every single night to carry out either uh, acts of violence or arson. And so um, to see Twitter, um, and to see big tech actually really white parlor off um, the internet for an amount of time because they blamed parlor for uh, people allegedly organizing or promoting the 6th of January protests on there. And then to see Twitter take absolutely really no action on these Antifa groups that not just organize openly, but then fundraise as well. And um, the fundraising is a big thing. People ask me, how are people showing up night after night after night to riot when they've been arrested six, seven, eight, or nine times? Well, their bail is covered for, and that bail is being promoted through these links that are shared on Twitter. Andy, really quickly, just so, so we have clarity for the audience, the January 6th riot has been described constantly in the media as an insurrection, but there was no actual plan to overthrow the government. Does Antifa see itself as a revolutionary organization meant to actually overthrow the government? Well, I think it tells us a lot that those who are accused of crimes on the 6th of January are not being charged with insurrection. And if you talk to journalists who are actually war correspondents, who actually um, cover uprisings and regime changes, uh, they laugh if you describe what happened on the 6th of January as an insurrection. That's been more so a word that's been used by the media and politicians because it's sensational for political reasons. Um, on the other hand, Antifa actually, by in their own writings, you can look on their pamphlets, on their websites or the social media, they describe the actions, uh, the riots, the violent, deadly riots of last year as uprisings or insurrections. Those are their own words. In fact, they look to the success in Minneapolis where the police station was um, sieged and then completely burnt down 
as um, an insurrection. And they even released, um, in one example, a, an after action report on what made it so successful and how you can repeat these similar actions in other cities. And that information was disseminated again openly on Twitter. Andy you No, know, always appreciate your work on this, sir. Good to see you. Thank you. We'll be right back with more of this special edition of Hold the Line. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What is an insurrection? The word has been casually thrown around since January, but we rarely stop to examine what it really means. Simply put, it's an uprising against the government, often with the goal of achieving political and territorial autonomy. Now, there's no evidence that this was actually the goal or even possible for it to happen on January 6th, but this is precisely what happened in June of 2020. They called it the CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. For the better part of a month, anarchists and BLM protesters occupied six blocks of downtown Seattle, barricading entrances and barring the entrance of police and city officials. As one would expect, the area became a lawless mess. There were multiple shootings, two homicides, assaults, rapes, and widespread drug abuse. So how did the left respond? Well, here's what Seattle's mayor, Jenny Durkin, had to say at the time. Lawfully gathering and expressing First Amendment rights demanding we do better as a society and providing true equity for communities of color is not terrorism. It is patriotism. The right to challenge authority and government is fundamental to who we are as Americans. Challenge authority and government by setting up your own little country in the middle of Seattle, apparently. Here for more is Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH in Seattle. Jason, great to see you. Thanks for having me. So you were in Seattle at the time of the CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, the little statelet that the leftists created. What'd you see? I saw way worse than what a lot of media outlets were showing you. Certainly there were some that weren't showing you anything at all. I mean, these were armed activists, some of them Antifa, some of them BLM radicals, some of them just agitators that decided to take over six city blocks of Seattle, one of the city's most densely populated parts of Seattle. They did it with force. They did it under the threat of continued violence that they were taking on against police days leading into this, including getting the support of council members who were a part of the rallies where items were being thrown at cops and eventually forced them out of the West Precinct. And obviously once it started to uh, get established, lots of fights, lots of fights. There were arson attempts uh, at some of the local businesses, lots of vandalism, lots of random assaults. And then ultimately it ended up leading to the shooting deaths of not one, but two black teenagers. So this idea that this is all about showing that black lives matter, well, it ended up costing the lives of two black teenagers. Just to be clear about the mission here of the CHAZ as it was laid out by these armed activists, as you point out, I mean, there were people, I remember seeing photos 
uh, and video at the, at the time of people who were, were walking around with, with rifles, people walking around with sidearms, yeah. who were claiming to be effectively a police force unto themselves. What did they say, Jason, in the Chaz, was actually the purpose of this? They were talking about taking back a community. They believed, somewhat ironically, given how it all ended, that the police department in this neighborhood, which is known for being very activist, they were saying that the police were the ones posing the problems, that the violence that was happening in the neighborhoods, not just around Capitol Hill, but also around Seattle, is due to police. That police, by the very nature of their presence, makes a community less safe. So they said, we can do it ourselves. We want to take on this precinct and turn it into a community center so that people can feel uh, you know, a little bit less uh, unsafe in their own neighborhoods. And of course, we ended up seeing what happened. It's, of course, ludicrous. At the time, I mean, they were really leaning into the BLM movement. This was the height of the activism after you know, the incident, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. They were pretending that police officers are all like Derek Chauvin. And of course, the data doesn't point that out. The data doesn't even come close to making that case, certainly not in Seattle. Jason, what would happen when police tried to go into the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone? I mean, I think it's hard for people in America to even consider the, the possibility that in a major American city like Seattle, there could be an area that was denied to police and that police would allow that to happen? I mean, how were the boundaries of the CHAZ enforced when it comes to law enforcement? It, it was quite literally a no-go zone for police. They were ordered not to go into the zone out of fear that it would cause a riot and out of fear that the officers would be in danger. And they very clearly would. There was a moment early on after one of the shootings where they tried to get in and they were being hassled and heckled and threatened with violence by the people who were there. Remember, they had their own police force, so they thought they could handle it themselves. And it turns out, at least based on some of the evidence that we have so far, that some of the help that they were offering to the victim actually helped kill that victim. Police not being able to go in there, the police, more importantly, not being able to accompany the paramedics to go in there, because the paramedics weren't gonna go in there under the threat of violence either. That led, I believe, lots of people believe, and there's a lawsuit now, to the death of one of the victims. Here's what Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best had to say about all this at the time. Um, our 911 uh, response times have tripled in the area. They've gone from just over five minutes to about 18 minutes. Rapes, robberies, and all sorts of violent acts have been occurring in the area they were not able to get to. So it is not a right for us not to be able to deploy our officers here rapes and robberies occurring that officers could not get to because of this little fake country that they had carved out of Seattle, mm -hmm. essentially, this autonomous zone, no-go zone, as you say. And Chief Best actually resigned, uh, from what we understand, Jason, right after this, in part because the city cut police funding. I mean, has the Seattle Police Department recovered from this? No, it's gotten worse. I mean, they committed to 50% defunding. Thankfully, they didn't get that high, but they did get near 20%. And as a result, since all of this started to happen, the Seattle Police Force has lost a third of its department. We have the lowest 
deployable staff since the 1980s. And of course, the population in Seattle has grown considerably since then. So right now, there is no end in sight. We've lost 300 officers. We believe that that number is going to continue to get worse. This is around the time where we tend to see the separations. Those are retirements, sometimes due to age, but oftentimes due to just not wanting to be with the, the force anymore. And people just walking off the job, making lateral moves to different departments. So we normally see uh, an uptick around this time and into the next couple months. So things are going to get considerably worse. And by the way, at the same time, guess what's happening? We're seeing a surge of violence. We're seeing a record high last year was a 26 year record high homicide rate. And we at the pace that we're currently on will exceed that this year. Maybe allowing a bunch of activist anarchists to create their own little mini country in the middle of a, mayor, a major American city was a, a bad precedent, a bad idea. Yeah. Jason. Shocking, right? Yeah, crazy. Great to see you, man. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Bob. All right, the BLM riots have had a profound impact on law enforcement nationwide, resulting in a rise in violent crime that continues to this day. After the break, former NYPD officer John Cardillo is going to join us to discuss the fallout from last year's insurrection. In the aftermath of the January 6th riot, Democrats made a big show of expressing support for the Capitol Police. Responding officers were hailed as heroes. Some were even awarded congressional gold medals for their actions on that day. Fair enough. But it's a far cry from their actions of last year, while police in cities around the nation were being routinely targeted by rioters. According to a report from the Major Cities Chiefs Association, more than 2,000 law enforcement officers were injured in the first weeks of protests following the death of George Floyd. How were those officers thanked? Like this. Yes, I support the defund movement because this is about the, the um, investment in our communities which have historically been divested. Not only do we need to defund, but we need to dismantle and start anew. Why use the word defund? Why use the word defund? And it's like, this is the word that's coming from the streets. Look, the reality is we can't rely upon the police to provide public safety. And they meant it. Dozens of cities, including New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago, went on to slash their police budgets a move that had real-world consequences for crime around the nation. All right, let me bring in former NYPD officer and conservative commentator John Cardillo on this one. John, before we get to the defunding aspect, well, I mean, what was the immediate consequence of the BLM riots to police and police departments around the country? Oh, a severe, a severe uh, uh, crushing of morale across the board. Cops distrusted their bosses, who in big cities, Buck, we've spoken about this, are ultimately mayors, city managers, the people who are elected, right? County sheriffs tend to be a little more conservative. But the places we're talking about, the New Yorks, the St. Louis, the Chicago, the Minneapolis, Portland, Seattle, the list goes on. These are all big city departments with appointed chiefs, and they're effectively managed. Those apartments are really run by those elected mayors, city managers, in the case of LA, a police commission. All far left, all anti-cop. I've never seen, it's been gee, I don't know, 25 to 27 years that I either worked in alongside or been analyzing law enforcement on air. 
I don't think I've ever seen morale this bad, including when I first came onto the job as a rookie pre-Giuliani in the early 1990s. John, there's been a lot of uh, time and attention in the media on the wounds, both physical and psychic, of or psychological, of the police officers on January 6th. But as we're talking here about the other insurrection that went on for weeks, actually months, starting in June of 2020, the BLM insurrection, if you will, uh, there were thousands of officers severely injured or injured in capacities that made them have to seek medical attention, including being blinded with lasers and intentionally by people who were uh, Antifa, Black Bloc members at different... I mean, I, I gotta say... When you're trying to permanently blind someone, which is what they're doing, to me, that should get a whole lot of attention, and yet there's no willingness in the media to even mention that stuff anymore. We don't hear anything about what went on for all that time when it came to officers being injured in line of duty by people attacking them, but they were Biden voters. Yeah, I mean, look, if you were, if you landed here in a spaceship, you would think there were four cops in the United States and you'd know the names of two of them, Dunn and Fanon. You would think these four got three U.S. Capitol uh, police officers, one Metro a D.C. cop, Fanon. You would think they were the only cops alive in the United States because of all the accolades and praise they're getting. Most people have never heard of George Gonzalez, Buck. I'm sure you know who he is. He's the Pentagon for security, the Pentagon police officer who was stabbed to death yesterday. Stabbed to death. And the suspect committed suicide with the officer's weapon. The suspect uh, was also shot by responding partners of the police officer. Another federal police officer stabbed to death. You don't know his name. In April, four months after these attacks, the uh, uh, four months after the January 6th incident, the uh, Pentagon lost another police officer. That officer was run into with a vehicle. You don't know that officer's name. So this was cherry picked by the liberals in Congress, by Nancy Pelosi, Corey Bush, AOC, Swalwell, Adam Schiff. They found these four guys. Now, I've had, geez, I don't know how many hits we've done together over the years, many. You've been on my shows, I've been on your shows. We've spoken about this offline, about police. We both support the police vehemently. I work there. But I spoke to a very high-ranking source in, in D.C. Metro PD who called Fanon, that Capitol cop who testified, mm -hmm. quote-unquote, a head case. Said other cops want to be nowhere near him. He lasted in narcotics about a week because he couldn't get along with any of the team members. They wanted him gone. Nobody believes his story. And more importantly, I was told by a very high-ranking officer in that department, one of the bosses, Fanon's testimony to Congress was never vetted, never verified, and never approved. But his bosses are too afraid of the political fallout to discipline him, discipline him as any other officer would be. This is very problematic. I mean, John, that's the way that they got the insurrection narrative and, and essentially waved the, the bloody shirt here, the Democrats, for months by suggesting that, one, an officer was killed by rioters on January 6th, which turned out to not be the case, bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher. We know that was not true, despite months of it being repeated in the media. And still to this day, people will sometimes say it. Meanwhile, there were law enforcement officers across the country who were being assaulted, hit with bottles, hit with bags of urine. Uh, there were leftist Biden voters throwing Molotov cocktails at police cars. Molotov cocktail is a lethal instrument and a weapon of war. There were people in Portland who, as I said, were 
throwing cinder blocks and using lasers on the eyes of police officers and spraying sure. them with all kinds of chemicals and irritants and hitting them with rocks in the face. And yet we don't hear about the prosecutions of those rioters because it seems that in many cases, John, district attorneys who are Soros approved and Democrat aligned don't think yeah. that those assaults against law enforcement officers mean very much. No, not at all. They're dropping the charges. It, it, it's uh, it's asinine. And but let's not forget the forty to sixty Secret Service uniformed and and eighteen eleven investigators of the United States Secret Service who were injured when Black Lives Matter and Antifa decided to rush the Trump White House. That has completely been blacked out of the media. Forty dozens of Secret Service agents injured when these lunatics, these domestic terrorists, rushed the White House. It's as if it never happened, but you nailed it. Soros-backed prosecutors, it all started with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, and now it's an epidemic throughout the country. They're dropping these charges while the 1-6 defendants, the January 6th defendants, many of them not charged with felonies, are sitting without bail in federal jails. This is not America. This should terrify everyone watching and listening. John, do you think Democrats are going to be forced to pay a price for the anti-cop defund the police narrative in the midterms? I know it's a ways off, but do you think that the message, part of what we're trying to do here is remind everybody of what that really meant and what really happened? Yeah, look, I think they would if we did more of this. You and I talk about it all the time. Our politicians don't. Republican leadership in the House and the Senate, they won't talk about it. Because, Buck, I said this to you on and off air. You know, I live in Broward County. It's blue. You go a little bit west of me, it's very blue. But those soccer moms who vote Democrat, they also vote to keep that uniformed cop in his marked car on his off-duty detail in the driveway of their HOA, at the guard gate of their HOA. They feel very safe with that police presence there. Those people are not buying in to defund the police. And I think we need to tell that story like you're doing it here in context and showing the fallout. Portland, an 800% increase in murders directly correlating to defund the police. That will resonate with voters. John, always good to see you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Bob. We'll be back in a moment with more of this special edition of Hold the Line. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Capitol Hill riots continue to dominate the news cycle, but the truth is that the costs of the BLM riots in both dollars and lives dwarf those incurred on January 6th. According to Axios, the vandalism, looting, and arson that took place in 140 cities following the death of George Floyd is estimated to have cost insurance companies $2 billion, possibly more. That includes $550 million in the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul alone. In addition, at least 25 deaths and 14,000 arrests have been directly tied to the unrest. 
So who was responsible for all the carnage? Frankly, we don't know. As the Department of Justice and FBI continue to spend millions of dollars and countless man hours investigating the Capitol Hill riot, they appear to have little interest in who was behind last year's unrest. Joining me now, senior editor at Human Events, Jack Posobiec. Jack, always good to see you. To what do you attribute the lack of interest the DOJ has had so far in the BLM riots? Well, Buck, it's truly amazing. And so I wrote about this in my new book, Antifa Stories from Inside the Black Block. People can go and check it out at antifabook.com. Black Block is the name of those ubiquitous black uh, squadrons and battalions of Antifa fighters that would show up at these Black Lives Matter rallies and that eventually turned into protests and then riots, in many cases, arson, looting, as the nights dragged on throughout the summer of 2020, just one year ago. And in the very first chapter of the book, I take people in to see President Trump sitting across the Resolute desk from none other than Chris Ray of the FBI to say, why aren't you doing anything about this, Chris? And Chris turns to him and says something. It's it's so banal, but it's amazing to hear this, that, well, Antifa, that's more of an ideology. We don't go after those. And you know, you look at the response to January 6th, you look at the informants that they've used in the groups up there in Michigan, and you really have to ask yourselves, why was it that those groups, right, were given such a priority over the groups that were actually in the streets night after night within the uh, within our cities that the mainstream media in many cases wouldn't cover. We're actually living in something that's sort of a pseudo reality. And many of the people within the DC bubble, which includes our Department of Justice and our FBI, unfortunately, are also living within this DC bubble where they're reading CNN, they're watching, or excuse me, they're watching CNN, they're reading the New York Times, the Washington Post, and they're using that to set their agenda rather than the actual incident reports that are coming out from units and local police officers that are on the Around squaring off with these thugs. Jack, give us a sense, if you can, of the scope and, and scale of the destruction from the ongoing insurrection of BLM and Antifa in the summer of 2020. I mean, how much damage was done? Well, you look at it in some situations in terms of not only the cities. Uh, that were affected, the burning of Kenosha, the burning, by the way, which was applauded and celebrated by one of the Capitol Police officers, this guy, Harry Dunn, who's now up there at this January 6th commission, uh, talking to Nancy Pelosi and saying how we have to go after all the Trump supporters. Um, he was, at, I was in Kenosha after that happened. I saw the burned down blocks and blocks of the city. Many of them uh, were actually car yards. So people were selling, you know, car traders, and uh, we're selling used cars. These are people who, these are not owned by rich folks, by the way, right? They were owned by, these are small business owners, local business owners trying to make a buck, in many cases owned by immigrants. Their inventories were completely torched. And I did a video literally just walking around uh, the burnt out husks of these cars, uh, rusted up, twisted metal, in many cases, you know, the burning plastic smell. And of course, that's also the place where you saw multiple shootings, uh, so many riots that took place, not only in Kenosha, but across the country. Then you fast forward to what happened in Seattle, in the Chaz out there, uh, not only businesses that were destroyed, but shootings and killings that took place. Uh, many people were shot after hours. Then eventually we had homeless people even killing each other inside the park out there in Chaz. It was complete anarchy. 
And the mayor, Jenny Durkin, who is now no longer running from re-election for mayor because she ordered the police to stand down and abandon that area, the six square blocks of Chaz. She is the one who allowed all of this to happen, who put the residents and the business owners of that area completely at risk. And by the way, they are suing the city right now because of what she did. And this is going to go forward. Has there been any real accountability for the hundreds, if not thousands of people involved in these BLM and Antifa based riots? I mean, do we know of of uh, broad scale prosecutions, federal prosecutions against individuals here? I mean, I've, I've seen reporting, Jack, on different cities, district attorneys not pressing charges, essentially saying we're, we're going to just let people get away with rioting because they were rioting for the right political party. Have there been cases of deterrent prosecution that just haven't gotten as much attention when it comes to BLM and Antifa? So there have been some. There's been spot instances where the violence has become so egregious or so targeted specifically on uh, certain individuals that there have been prosecutions, but nothing like the broad based push that we've seen from DOJ in conjunction with the FBI following January 6th. Uh, one example that I would point to is the shooting of Trump supporter in the streets, Aaron Danielson, in the city of Portland last year, about one year ago, it was last August. And uh, that was done by a guy by the name of Michael Forrest Reinhold. He then fled the state, the state of Oregon up to north to the state of Washington. Because he did that, a U.S. federal marshal team was sent out after him, the fugitive um, task force. And they eventually did end up um, fatally wounding him during apprehension. And so that was a situation where you've got someone who's actually murdering a Trump supporter in cold blood in the street. And that's what it takes to get any type of prosecution against these guys. Jack, just in terms of the politicization from the DOJ side and, and you know FBI actions, uh, you've been working on these issues for a long time. Are, have you ever seen anything like this before where there's the constant focus on one day, as in January 6th, while it seems like DOJ just ignores the dozens of riots and acts of arson and violence against law enforcement that occurred in an election year explicitly designed, I think you could argue, to try to push the election in one direction. Well, it really is kind of amazing, right? You go back and you look at the weather underground and we cover this in the book. Uh, as well of the 1960s, and they were infiltrated, and they did go after the weather underground. It's only after um, the politicians said that the FBI was going too far and doing too much to go after these groups that they pulled back those types of prosecutions. And so because of that, left-wing violent groups and left-wing violent individuals are almost given a free pass. Well, if there's anyone who's on the conservative side, even if you're just in a Facebook chat room and you're sharing memes, you'll be accused of violence and you can go to jail in many cases just for doing that and just for talking about your attendance at January 6th. Jack, good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Buck, always a pleasure. All right, that's all the time we have for this special edition of Hold the Line. I'd like to thank my guests, Andy No, John Cardillo, Jason Rance, and Jack Posobiec for joining us and sharing their expertise. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is up next. Shields high.